we're going to talk today a little bit about um, Torah Shabbat Peh. So um, we're gonna, let's get started right away. Now, in fact, um, the defining feature of Judaism, and particularly Orthodox Judaism, is not the Chumash, the Torah Shabbat um, In truth, the Christians and the Muslims all accept the five books of the Chumash. So what makes us really distinct is the Torah Shabbat Peh. Now, built in to the Torah Shabbat we have references to this body of law, the Torah Shabal Peh. So I'm just going to cite a few of them before we get into our discussion of the nature of Torah Shabal Peh. Um, the first and most explicit source is, I think it's actually not on your source sheet, is in Devarim Parak Yud Zion. So I'm going to take a look there for a minute. Um, it's Devarim Parak Yud Zion, Psukim Chet through Yud Gimel. Let's see. I think it's not on the source sheet. Is that right? Okay. Okay. So it says. So I'm, I'll, I'll read it to you. Do you want me to hold it? Sure. No problem. It doesn't go that low. So I'll hold it. Okay. Ki palemim chadavar lemishpat bein dam ledam bein din ledin bein nega lenega divrei rivo b'sharecha v'kam tavalita el hamakom asher par Hashem el kachabo. So if you have a case that's um, difficult to determine, um, whether it's between a blood to blood, if it's tahor or tamay, whether it's the din, whatever, if you have an an in clarity about how to determine the halakha of a case, so get up and go to the place that Hashem has chosen, I'm speaking about Yushalayim, and actually to the site of the Beit HaMikdash, ubata el ha-koanim halavim, el ha-shofit, asher yeb yamim so you'll go and you'll speak to the court, you'll speak to the justice there, and they'll tell you what the answer is, how to determine this halacha. And then you have an obligation to follow whatever this Beit in Hagadol tells you to do. So that's that famous pasuk that we don't veer, don't veer from what this Beit in Hagadol tells you to the right or to the left. I mean, follow it exactly. Okay, so that's going to be our first source. And it goes on to, sit, to, um, to speak about the punishment of the person who does. But that's, I would say, the most explicit source that beyond what it says in this Torah Shebuchtav, there's an obligation as well to when we have when there's ambiguities when we don't know what to do there's another sort of body of law where we turn to these chachamim and they can tell us what to do it's it's extra it's beyond the the written biblical text okay so that's that's our first source aside from that there are numerous references and hints um, in the Torah the midrashim have a lot of fun with this um, I'll just tell you one that the Rambam speaks about the Rambam quotes Shmot Chafalif Chaf Gimel. Um, it's part of the Matan Torah ceremony where it says, et That God says, I will give you the Luchot, the Torah, and the Mitzvah. So the Rambam in his Hakdama to Mishnah Torah says, Torah, so Torah Shebechtav. So the word Torah, right, is there, the Rambam is speaking about the extra word. We don't need to hear Torah and Mitzvah. Why does it say both? So Torah, zo Torah Shebechtav. That's the written Torah. The um, Hamitzvah, zo Perusha. That's the explanation of what's written. And we need to follow the Torah according to what's explicated in the mitzvah. 
The mitzvah zohi hanekrei Torah shabalpeh. What is this mitzvah? This is this second body of law beyond the Torah shabalpeh. It's the Torah shabalpeh. Now, additionally, logically, it makes sense that there's another body, that there is this Torah shabalpeh, because the Torah shabalpeh is ambiguous, and I would say even deliberately ambiguous. It's unclear. So there must be another body that explains it. Otherwise, how can we understand what the Torah Shebechtav demands of us? Okay, so this is sort of just a background to the basis that the idea of Torah Shebechtav is also built in to the Torah Shebechtav. Now, once we begin this discussion, there are many questions that come out about the nature of Torah Shebechtav. So I'll just throw out two of them. Um, we could probably come up with a very long list. And then we'll use those two as our window into the exploration of this topic. So question number one. What part, if any, um, of the Torah of the Torah is received from God? I mean, what, 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 how much did we get of this body? We know it's not written, but how much of it did we get from God, and how much of it is man-generated? And attached to that is when did we get it? Meaning, is this was this something that was given at Har Sinai when Moshe received the Torah? Did we get it at a different point? But um, from who does it come from, and when did we? If we got some from God, when did we get it? So that's our first question. Um, and the second question is, the process of Torah Shabbat, right, some of which is recorded in the Mishnah and the Gemara, is filled with discussions, machloket, disputes, clarity. Why couldn't God just kind of package this second part nicely, neatly, give it to us, and tell us exactly what to do? Wouldn't that just be much simpler than, a, you know, definitely um, high school boys and girls would... Um, not complain that that to suffer through all those uh, Gemara classes, the debates back and forth. Why do we need all this ambiguity? I mean, why is it built into the system? Okay, so we're going to explore these questions. Now, in order to respond to these questions, um, I'm going to present you three different conceptual models of how Torah Shabbat works. Because, of course, the answer to this question is that it's a machloket. There's many different ways to look at it. So we're going to look at it from three different approaches. And what I love about Jewish philosophy is that there's no one right answer. So um, there's lots of different perspectives. So I'm going to present you three different conceptual models. Um, and this is, I, I just wanted, it's from um, Moshe Habertal has an article in his book, People of the Book, where he presents three different structures. So I'm going to use his structures and then build on them. Okay, so the first approach is based on the Midrash. And I think that this actually is your first source. Okay. Um, I'm using a different source sheet, so if not, just tell me and I'll point out where it is. Okay, so the source is in um, the Yerushalmi, and it's quoting the Midrash, and the Midrash says, Afil Masha Talmid Vatik Atid Rabo, Emar Misinai. So even the discussion that the Talmud has before his Rebbe, meaning any minute conversation or discussion about halacha, about Torah Shabbat, was actually initially given to Moshe at Har Sinai. Okay, so this, is a pro- this approach is the one where when Moshe came to Har Sinai, Hashem gave him everything. Now then what happened? Halacha becomes the transmission of what was received by Moshe through a continuous chain of scholars. So initially Hashem gave Moshe everything. Now the Torah Shabbat was written down. The body of Torah Shabbat was not. But everything was given to him. And then through the generations, from one scholar to the next, this body of law is passed down. Okay, now, so then what are we interpreting? Why do we interpret? Well, what happens is that people forget. Um, and once people forget, then we, Chachamim need to re, we need to interpret in order to recover that which was lost. 
But initially, everything was given to Moshe at Har Sinai. Now, let's take a look for a minute. The second source is from the Sefer HaKabbalah. Um, not Kabbalah in the sense of like the Zohar, but Sefer HaKabbalah in, in, in terms of like receiving, where um, it, it's um, a book written by Rabbi Avram ben David Halevi in 12th century Spain, and he goes through, the Rambam does this as well, the chain of oral transmission from Moshe until his day. So he says in every generation, this is the person who is responsible for the Mesorah. Um, now, part of his motivation, by the way, just an aside, was to counter the Karaites at the time, who believed only in the written law, but not the oral law. So he is trying to explain how, yes, the oral law existed, and this is the way it passed down. So let's let's take a look at this um, at an excerpt from Sefer HaKabbalah. Okay, so we'll look at the first paragraph. Um, the purpose of this book of tradition is to provide students with the evidence that all of the teachings of our rabbis of blessed memory, namely the sages of the Mishnah and Talmud, have been transmitted. Each great sage and righteous man, each head of an academy in his school, having received them from the head of an academy in his school, having received them from the head of the academy in his school, as far back as the men of the great assembly, who received them from the prophets of blessed memory all. So I mean, everything that we have is really a direct transmission back to that moment at Harsinai. Now, never did the sages of the Talmud, and certainly not the sages of the Mishnah, teach anything, however trivial, of their own invention, except for the enactments which were made by universal agreements in order to make a hedge around the Torah. So other than certain things that were done in order to protect the Torah, um, which is really you know, only safeguarding something that previously existed, everything was really an existent body that was passed down from generation to generation. Now, the problem that comes up with this is if so, right, if we're only trying to recover something that we know already existed, why is there so much machloket? Why is there so much debate? Um, why are we debating so many points when what we're really passing down is something that was already resolved? Um, there shouldn't be so much, you know, so much, so, such a high percentage of machloket in the Mishnah and the Gemara. Okay, so take a look at the second paragraph. He continues, Now, should anyone infected with heresy attempt to mislead you, saying, is because the rabbis differed on any number of issues that I doubt their words, meaning like I doubt that this is passed down because there's so much machloket, you should retort bluntly and inform him that he is a rebel against the decision of the court and that our rabbis of blessed memory never differed with respect to a commandment in principle, but only with respect to its details. For they had heard the principle from their teachers, but had not inquired as to its details since they had not waited upon their masters sufficiently. So why is there so much machloket? So first of all, he says, machloket is only about the details. The machloket, the, what the sages are debating, is not about the commandment, the mitzvah in principle. We all agree on what the mitzvah is in principle. But what about the details? Ah, so because of negligence, that's, that's really what he says, in, truth, in terms of waiting, one on, in, in terms of how the student waited on his rav, he didn't inquire enough as to the details, so we lost some of the details. So all of this machloket is really about the details, but not about the essentials. Um, and he gives a few examples. As a case in point, they did not differ as to whether or not it's obligatory to light the Shabbos lamp. What they did dispute was with what it may be lighted and with what it may not be lighted. Similarly, they did not differ as to whether we are required to recite the Shema evenings and mornings. What they differed on was from when may the Shema be recited in the evenings and from when may the Shema be recited in the mornings. This holds true for all of their discussions. So he gives a few examples how truth, don't, don't worry so much about this machloket question. Uh, he doesn't want this to be the focus because machloket is really only about the details. Um, so just to summarize this opinion, 
Over time, due to forgetfulness, careless, and difficult political circumstances as well, knowledge begins to erode. So halakhic reasoning is essential only to reconstruct lost knowledge that we have already had in the past. So in this perspective, the truth is, machloket, this whole concept of rabbis debating each other, is a negative. Because we really shouldn't have had that. If we had transmitted correctly, we wouldn't have this type of debate. Okay, now, the, the problem with this perspective is that it casts doubt on the reliability of tradition. Um, if knowledge was lost through neglect, then we also may have recovered it incorrectly. Yeah, go ahead. from Sefer HaKabbalah is the most extreme formulation. So I want you just to sort of see the end of the debate, like how far you could go. According to the most extreme opinion, nothing is potential. What was really handed over was everything, was really everything. You know, even in the sense of that, um, you know, exactly the halakha that are, that apply to after electricity is created were initially given to Moshe Harsinai. Now, the less extreme way of saying that Right, which is, I would say, the most liberal way of staying within this opinion, is to say that everything was given in potential, but then we had to work out the kinks. But I don't think that's what the Sefer HaKabbalah is saying, because I think he's more extreme. You know, he's saying, I want to show you two, another, I'll show you another opinion within this approach that is less extreme, that says much more in the line of what you're saying. But you're right, that's, that's a way to maintain this concept of Moshe receiving at Harsinai, but not having to say what seems almost ridiculous to us, that Moshe received all these concepts about electricity when electricity didn't even exist. So you're right, it's a very important and valid point. Yeah. Right. goes to the Beit Medrash of Rabbi Akiva, right, and he sits in, in the back, and Hashem says, um, and Rabbi Akiva's explaining something, and he doesn't understand, and so he says, oh, well, actually, this is, um, something comes up, so this is Halakhala Moshe Misinai. So, right, that fits nicely with what you were suggesting, which is that Moshe did receive everything in its potential, um, but didn't necessarily receive the nuances, and then what Rabbi Akiva is working out is actually the nuances. Um, how does that fit into the most extreme approach? I'm not sure that it does. Um, just as a way of methodology, I don't think each approach accounts for every single Gemara. You know, because the Gemara is a vast body that includes many, many different perspectives. 
So I, I don't know. It could be that this approach has a way to resolve that Gemara, but not necessarily does every approach resolve every Gemara. So it's a very good question, a good kasha on this um, approach. I, I'm not sure how, there probably is a way. I just need to think about that a little more, but it fits nicely with what you were saying. Okay, so let's, let's go into another question with this. Um, another question that we have to deal with here is that if we're only trying to recover a fixed body of knowledge, then why just why not just hand it over to us? You know, why make us go through this whole song and dance of trying to recover something? Let's just write it down the same way we wrote down Torah Shabbat and then we can use that as our you know as our guide. Okay, so there's two different. Um, this is much. This is later, but there's two different approaches that I saw to how to handle that question. Okay, so the, the first approach is in the Beis HaLevi. Um, the Beis HaLevi is written by Rav Yosef Dov Salvechik, who is actually the Rav's great-grandfather. Um, so take a look. I think it's the, it should be the next source in your, um, in your booklet. So he's going to explain why it needed to be written down, even if we had everything from before. So here's what he says. Kineba Midrash, Parsha Kitisa, al Oh, you know what? I'm going to start with the word Bisha'a. I think it should be on the second line. Take a look at the end of the second line. Um, do you see it? Okay. Okay. Here, so here's what happened. Just looking at this. Okay, here we go. Bisha'asha Niglaha Kadesh Baruch Hu Bisinai, Litain Torah, Amarla Moshe, Al Haseder, Mikra Umishna, Betamud Ba'agada, Shene'emar, Vedabero Kimet Kol Hadvarim Ha'ela, Lemor, Afilu Masha Tamud Batik Sho'el Arab. Okay, so here's our Medrash. That when Hashem appeared to Moshe at Harsina, he gave him everything. He gave him the Mishnah, he gave him the Gemara, and even the question or the presentation that the Talmud, any student, did before his, his Rav. Amalo Moshe, Hashem said to, Moshe said to Hashem, Echtov lahem bechtav. What's the big deal? Just write it down. Why are you giving this to me orally? We know that's going to cause lots of problems. Amalo, Hashem responded to Moshe, Lo. So why shouldn't we write it down? Because God said, I know what's going to happen. Ultimately, we're going to go into Gullahs, we'll be in the power of other nations, and these other nations are going to be, have, they'll be able to take this text and look at it. I really don't want that to be able to, to happen. I'll let them get their hands on Torah Shabbat right, which you see that almost every religion uses a Torah Shabbat um, But the Torah Shabbat is something that's unique. It's unique to you as Jews. And I don't want that to be something that anyone can get their hands on. So then he goes on to explain, um, so, and we've seen through the generations, the Septuagint, um, the Christian formulation of the Old Testament, that it's given. You know, it, other, other religions have translated and used the Torah Shevachtav. Because this is something that will always separate Jews from other religions. And it's true that what really separates us from other nations and religions is this Torah Shaval Peh. So really, there's nothing wrong, according to this approach. There wouldn't have been necessarily anything wrong with having it in writing. But 
If it was in writing, then it wouldn't have been exclusively ours. Anyone could have taken it, just as the Torah Shabbat has been used. So this was a way of having it uniquely be um, something that characterizes the Jews. Okay, so that's one approach. I'm going to show you a different, um, another approach to this question of why it couldn't be written down. Um, and this, I think, is already going towards um, your more expansive definition. Um, this is the Pachad Yitzchak, which is your last source. So take a look for a minute at the Pachad Yitzchak, um, written by Rav Hutner. Here's the way Rav Hutner explains it. He says, and this is actually, this is such, it's just a very beautiful concept. He says, Pa'amim shebitulah shel Torah zohi kiyuma. Sometimes the bitul Torah, the fact that Torah is nullified, we'll see what that means, becomes the, 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 the force that brings it into existence. How? Shene'emar asher shibarta yasher kochachasha shibarta. Okay, so he's basing himself on this medrash that when Moshe received the luchot, the first luchot, and he came down, he saw the people, the um, Bnei built the Egel. What did he do? He flung them down and they shattered. And the medrash says, we have a very strange medrash, where the medrash says to, that Hashem said to Moshe, Yasher kochachasha shibarta. Moshe, you did the right thing by breaking the luchot. How could it be that he did the right thing by breaking the lufo? So he's going to take this measure and expand it into a conceptual idea. So this, this idea of breaking the lufo is the way that um, it, it essentially is life-giving to the Torah. How? That if the lufo hadn't been broken, then there would have been no forgetfulness. We never would have forgotten Torah. Okay, it sounds like a good thing. It um, sounds like a bad. Um, it would have been a good thing to not forget, but he's going to say our forgetfulness of Torah really is a good thing. Why? Then, in fact, by forgetting Torah, Torah expands. This act of forgetting Torah allows the expansion of Torah. Um, and he gives an example. That when Moshe died, 300 halachot were forgotten, and then Atniel ben Knaz was able to bring them back. So by the fact that someone else had to relearn them, that made Torah stronger. Um, just an example of this is, um, I, was, I was telling my daughter, who's um, about to be six, I don't know why I was telling her this, because it made her very upset, but I was telling her that story about how um, when you're in, when a child is like in the womb, Hashem teaches them all of Torah, and then when the child is born, you get that little um, pinch, and then um, and they forget everything, and you get to relearn it. So she was very upset, because she said, I had everything, why would Hashem take it away from me? So I was trying to explain to her that when you learn it again and you own it, then that adds to your experience. You know, you want to learn it on your own. She, she didn't, that's where we reached, like, the ceiling. <laughs> so I kind of we'll, we'll talk about this again in a few years. But, um, but this is this idea that if we had, if we all knew everything, there would be nothing to learn. But the fact that it's forgotten reinforces it. Okay, but then he goes on to say something else. Okay, 
Elu, Elu, Divrei Elohim Chayim. Okay, we're going to see that again in a little bit. V'nebza dechol chiluke deyo v'chilufe shitot him hagdalat ha-Torah v'ha-adarta hagdolot dafka b'kocha shel shechachat Torah. So ultimately, before we forget Torah, then we debate it. And even the opinions that are not right, that are not the halacha, they still become part of this body of Torah. So the body of Torah expands. And even an opinion that's not what God originally gave, that too has the status of Torah. So this is already a more expansive view that includes that no matter what, when we're debating Torah, even the opinion that we don't follow, it's also Torah, even if it's not right. Okay. So that, that's, I think we'll use that as our, as our ending of approach number one and then move on to the second approach. Yeah. Right, well, you'll see that the approaches get more open-ended. So, um, yeah, so t- let's take a look at the, at the second, at, right, at the second approach. Now, the second approach is really introduced by the, by the Rambam. Now, the Rambam was the first to introduce the idea that Chachamim used novel interpretations of the Torah, of their own invention, alongside the received interpretation of Moshe. So not that we're just trying to recover something that has been lost or trying to pass on a body that we already have, but we're being innovative and we're being creative and we come up with new things. So the Rambam was the first to really introduce that concept. Now, in this view, um, the halachic process is cumulative, meaning that every generation works with a given body of knowledge that they already have, which is both written and oral, and then they use their reasoning to add their own insights to this body of knowledge. Now, the question becomes, in what areas are the Chachamim allowed to innovate? What exactly are Chachamim involved in? So take a look at the next source, which is, um, oh, we went to the Pachad Yitzchak before. So now the a source after it says approach number two, it's um, the Rambam in, in Hilchot Mamrim. Okay, so he's going to speak about what exactly a Beitin is involved in. What are the different areas? So here's what the Rambam says. Beitin Hagadol Shabiyushalayim. So this Beitin HaGadol in Yerushalayim, which we saw in Devarim, they're the essence of Torah Shabbat. They're the deciders of this oral law. Okay, and these are the people that decide the Choku Mishpat, the laws. That it's a mitzvah that we need to listen to them. So everybody has to trust in this Beit and Hagadol, who are the, the pillars of Torah Shabbat. Okay, now here's where we're going to see what they're involved in. Halacha bet. Kol mi she'eno osek horatan, over below taseh. Mishene'emar lo tasor mina davar she'er gidu l'chayu minu smol. So anyone who doesn't follow them is over on this biblical commandment that we saw to not veer from what, they, what the Chachamim say. So it's a pretty bad punishment. It's not just um, lashes, but actually death is the punishment for veering from the court. Echad, um, now what are the things that are involved that the court decides? Echad, one, So first of all, the things that we heard from listening meaning things that were already given to Moshe at Har Sinai and were passed down generation to generation. So that's the first thing that this court needs to do. They need to hand over the halacha of Moshe Sinai. What's the second thing? Echad rim she'asum, I'm sorry, 
ואחת מן המידות שהתורה נדרשת בהם. ונראה ביניהם שהדבר הזה ככה הוא. Okay, so the second one is where they use their own reasoning. How did they use their own reasoning? Well, at Harsinai, Hashem didn't just give Moshe the Torah Shed of Tav and the Halakhal of Moshe and Sinai. He also gave him the 13 principles, the Yudkim Omido, of how one should interpret Torah. And Chachamim's job is to take these 13 principles and apply them to the Torah and then come out with the Halakha. So they're, they're passing down the actual Halakhal of Moshe and Sinai, such as pre-Eitz Hadar is an Esro. And then they're also passing down their applications of the Yudkim Omido. Okay, then the last one is about, again, this gzero, the times that they build a fence around, um, around the Torah, siyag, such as mukta. So these are the areas that Chachamim are involved in. So yes, there is creativity, but it is somewhat limited, because the creativity is limited to applying these 13 principles, applying these yudgimomido. Now, the Rambam has another clause, which is that there's also, there's no makloket about halakhla Moshe misinai. Whenever we see Machloket, it's only about the parts where Chachamim were creative, where they were applying these Yud Gimomidot. And that's where they debate back and forth. But anything that has Machloket about that has debate is by definition not Halakhal Moshe Misinai, because that was a given and protected body of knowledge. Now, just to you, one of the problems with this view is that the claim that there's no controversy regarding that which is Torah Moshe Misinai means that Torah Moshe Misinai was very, very limited because we have controversy about almost everything. So while the Rambam is trying to protect it and make this body of knowledge that was passed down from generation to generation pristine and not subject to debate, at the same time he's limiting it and he's making it very small um, we can't, by saying that there can't be any makloket about it. So that's, um, this is the second approach, which I would call like a limited creativity. Creativity in the realm of applying these to Gimomido. Okay, let's move to the third approach. Now, the third approach is the most creative and the most daring in terms of the role that it gives to Chachamim. Okay, now, this approach is introduced by the Ramban um, in his discussion of the authority of this Beit Din in Yerushalayim in determining halacha for the people and the people's obligation to listen to them. So let's take a look for a minute at the Ramban. Um, the Ramban is again basing himself on that on that section that we read in Tzvarim. Al pi haTorah sher yarucha ve'al hamishvat sher yamulecha taaseh lo tasur min adavar sher gidulcha yiminus mo. Don't veer from what they say to the left or to the right. So here's what the Ramban said. I'm going to just look at an excerpt from the second paragraph. So the second paragraph says, "Vahatzorich b'mitzvah zo gadol maod." It's very important that everybody should listen to this Beit Din Hagadol. Why? Right, the Torah, the, the books of the Chumash were given to us in writing. And God knew that we're not going to agree. Um, we're not going to agree on how to affect what's written in this Torah. And if God left it up to everybody to interpret on their own, we'd all be following a different set of practices and ultimately different religions. So, Okay, so, so because of that, God said, listen, there's going to be this Beit Din Rushalayim, Beit Din HaGadol, and everybody listen to them so that we're all following the same practices. Oh, um, and now what is this? Bein Shekablu Perusho whether what Beit Nagadol is saying is something that was passed down from Moshe at Har Sinai, or whether they're giving you what they think is the essence of what's written in Torah Shabbat Because God gave us the Torah 
that we should interpret it according to our own logic. So this is a very radical statement. He doesn't, it doesn't go into the details of what that means, but the statement essentially is that God gave us the Torah, and he said to us, here, you interpret it. We put it in your hands. Now there are allusions to this in the Gemara, but the Ramban really formulates it. He's, one of the, he's the Rishon that really formulates this as a principle. Now, how does this, how does this come into, how does this play out practically? Um, so there's really two, two ways to develop this concept. What does it mean that Torah is in our hands? What power do we have with the Torah? So the first, the first formulation of this concept is, um, is in the famous story of Tanor Shalachnai, the, in that oven where they were debating if it was pure or it was impure. So it's an amazing story. I'm sure many of you are familiar with it. Let's just take a look at it for a minute to see one formulation of this creative concept. Um, and that's the Gemara in Bava Metziah, Nun Tet Amud Bet. I'm starting from the second line where it says Tana. Tana, hayom Rabbi Eliezer kol olam So when Rabbi Eliezer was arguing for his point in this Machloket, he brought every answer in the world, but they didn't accept it from him. So what happens? Amar Lahem, Rabbi Eliezer said to the other group of Chachamim, Im halacha kimoti charuv If the halacha is like me, then this carob tree will prove it. So the carob tree uprooted and moved over a hundred amot. arba meot ama. He said four hundred amot. Amru We don't bring. You can't bring a proof to your opinion from this miracle of moving the carob tree. Chazar im If the halacha is like me, I'll I'll do a miracle that the the water current will prove it. Chazru amat hamayim la'acharehem. So the current turned. Amrulo ein mevin raime amat hamayim. You also can't bring a proof from the current of the water. Chazar v'amarlahem im halacha kamosi kotli beit hamidrash midrash yochichu. If so, the walls of the base midrash will prove this. Kitu kotli beit midrash lipol. So the walls of the beit midrash started um, falling in. This is a, a great way to wake up uh, all the students of Chachamim who are involved in this debate. Ga'ar bahem Rabbi Yoshua, Rabbi Yoshua got angry. Amar lahem, im talmidei chachamim benatzchim ze'adzeh b'halacha atem matimchem lo nachlu mipnei kvodosh Rabbi Yoshua v'lo zakfu mipnei kvodosh Rabbi Elazar v'adayin matim v'omdin. So what happened? The walls didn't fall all the way because of the kavod of Rabbi Yoshua, but didn't rise because of Rabbi Elazar. So they kind of stayed like a suspended. Okay. Chazar v'amar lahem, im halacha kamoti min hashamayim yochichu. So here's the, the important point for us. If the halacha is like me, then I'll bring you proof from the heavens. I'll bring you proof from God that I'm right. Yatza batkol, the amra. So a batkol, a voice of God, came out and said, Malachem eitzel Rabbi Eliezer, shalacha kamoto b'chol makom. What are you fighting with Rabbi Eliezer? He's right. So Rabbi Eliezer brought a batkol to prove, a voice from heaven to prove that he was right. Amad Rabbi Yeshua al-ragla v'amar lo b'shamayim he. So Rabbi Yeshua got up and said, no. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that we have a voice from God that said that you're right, because Torah is not in the hands of heaven anymore. My devarim lamed lo b'shamayim he amar Rabbi Yirmiyah shekfar natnat Torah mehar Sinai ain anu mashkichim bevatkol shekfar katapta bahar Sinai acharei rabim lahatos. So yes, it was given at Har Sinai, but at that point God said no more. Now it's in your hands. You do with it what you think is right. Um, and he gave us this principle that we follow the majority. And whatever the halacha is determined according to the majority. 
This is probably the most beautiful point of this Gemara. Rabbi Natan met, Rabbi, um, met Eliyahu. What was God doing while this is all happening down here? He was smiling. God was smiling as this debate was happening. That my sons have overpowered me. My sons have overpowered me. In that happy parent-like image of, yes, like, power to my children. This is what I wanted them to do. I wanted them to have their independence. I gave it to them, and look what they're doing. They've used it properly. Now, the Ran goes on to discuss this in the Drashot Haran, and he says, So it didn't matter that there was a Batkol. It didn't matter that God weighed in here. So what the, this formulation of this concept of creativity is radical in the sense of saying there is an objective right and God knew what the right answer was, but God allowed his children to overrule him. God, it doesn't matter that I know what the halakha is. It doesn't matter that I can give you the right answer. What you determine becomes your right. You have the ability to overrule me. What's most important is you should be creative with the Torah. And the answer that you come up with, that's what we follow. My objective right answer is really irrelevant. It's just, that's one formulation of this um, creative approach. The second formulation is a little bit different. And the second formulation is in um, is the next source, which is the Gemara in Masechet Erevin, Yud Gimel Amabet. So here's another um, famous Gemara about this. Amr Rabbi Abba, Amr Shmuel, Shloshanim Nechleku Beit Shammai Ubeit Hillel. Okay, for three years, Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel were arguing a certain point. Halalu Amrim Halacha Kimotenu, Halalu Amrim Halacha Kimotenu. Each side said, I'm right. Yatsa Batkol, the Amra. Now, this Batkol is not determining the Halacha, but a, another voice from heaven came out and said, Elu Ve'elu Divrei Elokim Chayim Hain. Both of these are the words of the living God. Now, what does that mean? The Halacha Kibet Hillel. However, the halacha is like Beit Hillel. So both of what Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai are saying are both divrei elokim chayim, the words of a living God. Yet, for the normative halacha, we're going to follow Beit Hillel. Um, and then it goes on to say, So if they're both words of a living God, why do we follow halacha ke Beit Hillel? Why does the halacha choose Beit Hillel? So essentially, we end up following Beit Hillel because of their character. They were more polite, more respectful in terms of the way they dealt with the other opinions. They would cite Beit Shammai's opinions. So because of their character, we followed them with halacha. But in essence, both of them are right. Both Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai are right. Now, the Ritva expands that in the next source, and the Ritva says, Elu ve'elu, divrei elu kimchayim. She'elu rabbanei tzorfat, zelashonam, asha'alu, I'm sorry, she'alu rabbanei tzorfat, zelashonam, they asked, hayach efshar she'yushnehem divrei elu kimchayim, oser matir. So how could they both be right? If one says it's, um, it's, it's aser, it's forbidden, and the other one says mutter, that it's permitted, then those seem like opposites to me. How could they both be right? And they explain, So when Moshe went to get the Torah at Har Sinai, 
So God showed Moshe about every debate, well, there's 49 reasons to say Aser, and there's 49 reasons to say that it's Mutter. So we turned to Hashem and said, what's going on with that? Let it be determined by the Chachamim of Israel. The Chachamim of Israel in every generation. So in this opinion, it's a little bit different. There's no God right answer. Essentially, God left it open-ended. He didn't make the determination. He said, yeah, I can see where you're coming from to say it, sir. I can see where you're coming from to make it mutter. I'm not going to weigh in here. I don't, it's my, my opinion is, is again irrelevant, but I don't even have an opinion. I hand it over to the Chachamim, and I'm going to allow the Chachamim to decide the Halakha. Now, which view is more radical of the two that I just presented? I think you could make a case for either side. According to the Ron's approach, God has a right answer, but he overrules himself. That's pretty extreme. On the other hand, according to the other approach, every question in its essence is open and multifaceted. And we, it's our job to expand on that, to take the Torah that we have and to, ex- to expand, to extrapolate, to go with it. God doesn't have a finished product. Now, Rav Lichtenstein discusses this in, in, in Leaves of Faith, and he discusses this concept of two types of Torah. There's Torah Emet and Torah Chesed, the Torah of truth and the Torah of Chesed, of um, it's a difficult word to translate. Uh, giving, kindness, but those are all fall short. But um, what is Torah Emet is the objective right. That's God's answer. So God has his answer in Shamayim. And Torah Chesed is man's determination, the way that man deals with the halacha. Now, by virtue of the fact that every man is different, man never has one right answer like God. We don't work that way. Find two Jews. What is it? You find uh, right three or seven or 20 different opinions. So we don't work like God where we have one objective right answer, but God wanted man to be building on the Torah. God wanted it to be handed over to man. So man's truth is always going to have different sides and perspective, but God gave it to us in order that we should find our own Torah chesed, our own multifaceted truth. So let's pull it together. We'll summarize the, um, the different opinions we saw. Um, we saw three different approaches. The first approach was the, mo- was the most limited, where all of Torah Shvalpeh was given to Moshe, um, and then due to forgetfulness, some was lost, and our attempts are to reconstruct that which was lost. Um, the second approach is that aside from halacha, I'm sorry, aside from the halacha l'moshem Sinai, God gave us specific tools of derivation, and then we apply that. Maybe that fits in a little bit with what you were suggesting before. Um, the third approach is really the most creative, where the Torah is put into the hands of man. God's answer is, so to speak, irrelevant, um, or that the body of Torah is open-ended and handed over to man to innovate with. Now, to me, all of these approaches, and um, most dramatically this last one, are inspiring. Um, you can look at the body of Torah and say, this book has been studied for thousands of years. What new ideas do I have after so many giants have studied it for so long? Um, what personal connection do I have to the Torah, and what impression can I make on such a historic work? Um, but you can see from each of these opinions that because of this concept of Torah Shabbat Peh, the oral Torah, the study of Torah is dynamic and also alive. Um, every person is different. Everyone brings their own questions and their own perspectives to the table. And this becomes part of an ever-growing and developing body of Torah knowledge. And this innovation and creativity is what keeps us excited and personally connected to the knowledge and the practice of the Torah. So may we continue to be excited and inspired and personally involved in our learning and living of the precious Torah.